All right, so welcome to part two of a three-part series, and I want to start with this. Okay, if you don't know what Twitter is or the way Twitter works, this first thing down here in the box was something that someone tweeted, and it says, Jesus is dead, okay? Now, how do you respond to that? You just say, uh-uh, okay? Well, if you understand some systematic theology and you have a sense of humor, you can do this right here. The little star there is like a correction, okay? And so you see what he did? Was, okay? Correction. Jesus did, in fact, die, all right, in order that he might be resurrected for our glory, uh, for his glory and our good, all right? So I show this to you to just say understanding scripture and understanding theology is important, okay? For some people, they're intimidated by the idea of theology, even though we're all theologians. You read your Bible and you believe something about God, in some sense, you are a theologian. Theology is important, okay? Our church has a doctrinal statement, which is an overview of systematic theology. It's a very big picture overview, but it uses scriptural references to explain positions that we take on certain issues. Now, I mentioned earlier, I've emailed out the doctrine and bylaws. So if you uh, get that uh, email that has the link for um, our service each week, uh, I sent a copy of the bylaws. And in Article 3 of our bylaws are, is the church's doctrinal statement? Okay, now we're not going to go through it with a fine-tooth comb, but what we're doing here, we've talked last week about how our church is a Bible church, and we talked a little bit about the history of what that means. Because it's a Bible church, it is independent, meaning that our church is an assembly of believers gathered under qualified biblical leadership. We're not opposed to working with other churches, but we believe that God has established churches to be independent, meaning non-denominational. Okay? doesn't mean that we think Presbyterians and Baptists are the absolute worst because they're a denomination, but it does mean that we see churches as being established by God under qualified biblical leadership, under the authority of Scripture and the Lord Jesus, as the model for a biblical New Testament church. There's lots of benefits to denominations in some ways, practical benefits. There are a lot of drawbacks as well, okay? And so we looked at kind of the history and background of the Bible church movement Again, we did a very big picture overview of that. What we're going to start this week and next is talking about our doctrine. Okay? What do we believe? And we're looking at four categories. First, our doctrine is historically Christian. Okay? That's the first thing we're going to be looking at this week. What I want to show you is that what we believe is what Christians have believed since the very beginning of the church. I want to show you things in Scripture. I want to show you quotations from early church fathers in the first few centuries that illustrate that. Much of what we believe doctrinally is historically Christian. It's also evangelical. We're going to talk a little bit about that word. It's kind of a byword in today's society. So we're going to kind of talk about what we mean when we say evangelical. Um, our doctrine is historically Christian. It's evangelical. And then next week, we're going to talk about what it means for it to be dispensational. What does that mean in terms of how we understand the unfolding of Scripture and what Scripture says about God's people? And then as well, we're going to talk about what it means for us to be Baptistic in our doctrine. Okay, so we're staying big picture, all right? I've given you the bylaws so that you can press further into that. I'm also going to hawk some books because that's what I do. Um, although, as Rick pointed out, not everyone has a book budget. But as I retorted... I did not always have a book budget, and so a lot of these came uh, prior to the book budget. So I am going to mention a few things. So I want to start off with our doctrine being historically Christian. Okay, what does that mean? Now, 
Let me just mention again before we get going. I have in front of me the Constitution of the North State Bible Church, which was established in the early 1960s. The Constitution of the North State Bible Church is very, very, very similar to our current doctrinal statement. Okay? So we have made some slight changes to wording and we've added some other things, particularly in light of changes we've seen within the culture. We felt it needed to express what is our church. If you can believe it or not, in the 1960s, they didn't have a clause about human sexuality. Okay? They didn't need it. It was just that it was understood. All right? And very wisely in the early 2000s, I'm sure at the behest of Jeff Barber, I think, he saw a lot of this coming. Jeff Barber was one of our elders, and he saw, I remember in our college and career group, him talking about some of these things. He taught a Sunday school class uh, on apologetics, and he, I remember him saying things like he anticipated sort of the transgender moment that we're in. And I remember him talking about that in the early 2000s and thinking, that's never going to happen. And here we are. And so very wisely, the elders adopted um, a very clear statement on uh, a biblical view of human sexuality. So I'm very grateful that they did that. But I've got a cut. Co- there's a couple of copies of this as well as the one from Riverwood. I'm not sure when this one was published, but an older Riverwood doctrinal statement. Uh, copies are in the back back there. There's some church do- documents from our church's history. If you want to poke back through those when we finish up. Um, let me go ahead and apologize. As always, I've probably bitten off more than I can chew this morning, so please bear with me as we move swiftly through some of these things, okay? Let me talk about something, what it means for our church to be historically Christian. Remember I showed you all last week that little pamphlet, the little yellow pamphlet? That was put out as a introducing themselves to the community document uh, from the church when it was North State Bible Church, I believe in 1965. And in that, in that document, it says this. It says, our viewpoint is basic, historic, biblical Christianity. That's the first thing they say about the church, okay? We want to be identified as Christian. That's the starting place for us as a church. Now, it's common amongst churches to go further into our theology in order to sort of identify ourselves, and we're going to do that. But in the current moment, can I just say to you, In the current cultural moment, it is most significant that we are identifiably and understandably Christian and know what that means and can articulate that within the surrounding culture, okay? People who are hostile towards the faith do not care if you're Baptist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Roman Catholic. They do not care. We need to be able to articulate specifically biblically Christian truth. What does it mean to be a Christian? We start there. And so with that in mind, I'm going to hit three big high points. Okay, let me just read this really quickly. Okay, our church's doctrine is historically Christian in that it reflects the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's a quotation from what Jude says, which is set forth in scripture and has been believed and proclaimed by Christians for two millennia. That is where we start doctrinally. We are Christians, okay? Now, this document, I'm, I should have printed some of these to give to you. This is not going to really be much help to you. What I did is I took our doctrinal statement, not every single subpoint, and I sort of parsed it out into these categories. But I just want you to see which ones fall into historically Christian. Do you see how most of our doctrinal statement falls into that category of historically Christian? 
All right, I'll, I'll send you, I'll email out to the church this, this, for those of you who are interested in this. But I just want you to see, okay, how much of our doctrinal statement falls into that category, Christian, most of it, all right? Now, these, do, these categories are not hard and fast, and I'm going to explain that in a little bit, but it's just kind of what we're working with. Now, what I want to start with is where our doctrinal statement starts. Now, when you get a systematic theology, they're going to start in one of two places. They're going to start either with the doctrine of God or they're going to start with the doctrine of Scripture. Okay, Those that start with the doctrine of God start with looking at what has been made and starting with sort of general revelation and saying, okay, what do we learn about God from general revelation? Then they move to special revelation where we say, okay, now how do we specifically know God? Other systematic theologies say you can't start with what we could possibly know about God. You have to start with how God has specifically revealed himself in Scripture. Now, that is where our doctrinal statement starts. It starts with Scripture. So I want to talk first about the Word of God as foundational for us as a church doctrinally. This is a quotation from our doctrinal statement with my own sort of... You see my mouth up there? No. With my own sort of like underlining and italics in there. Okay, look at, this is what it says. And what I would just encourage you, the first of every one of the statements in our doctrinal statement, it says, we believe. Do you remember us talking about that phrase when we looked at the Apostles' Creed series? The Latin word, credo, I believe. In our doctrinal statement, we use the same language. Now, we go into way more detail than the Apostles' Creed does, but it is a declaration of what we believe. Okay? All right, we believe that the Bible, consisting of the 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books, is the verbally and plenarily inspired or God-breathed word of God. His written revelation to man, recorded by selected men without error in the original writings, and that it is therefore the supreme and final authority in all matters of doctrine, faith, morality, and life. That is the foundation of everything. If we do not start with the word, if we do not end with the word, if what holds things in the middle between the beginning and end is not the word of God, we open ourselves up to all sorts of things. And I am so thankful. My friend James, um, who's a pastor in the United Kingdom, he's going to be preaching this morning. And he mentioned that the first time they came to visit back in 2011, he and my father-in-law were talking, and one of the things my father-in-law, Tom, said was, it is all about the Word. And James said that's just marked him in terms of how he thinks of our church. Now, we don't say that pridefully. We say that humbly. When we recognize that Scripture must be primary, we are recognizing that God is in charge and we are not. And that even our doctrinal statement, as scriptural as we think it is, it is always open to reformation if that is based on Scripture. It's not based on how we feel in the culture. It's not based on the changing appetites of people within the surrounding culture or even the changing moods of the leadership. It must be based on what Scripture teaches. And so that is foundational for who we are. Okay? The verse that we use to sort of support this, verse that's, verses that are familiar, all Scripture is breathed out by God means it originates with him it's profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete 
equipped for every good work. That's why what we do here, now we may have like a study that looks at church history and things like that, but when we're doing Bible study, we're studying the Bible. Like scripture is primary. It's one of the reasons why I'm very aware that our sermons are maybe longer than they are in other places. Okay. I, I, I do and don't apologize for that. Okay. I apologize for being long winded sometimes, but not that what we do is go through books of the Bible verse by verse and elevate scripture to its place of proper authority. That has always been done in this church. And by God's grace, it will always be done in this church until Jesus comes again. All right? That is the foundation for what we see in our doctrinal statement and what we believe. Now, there's a fantastic little book that came out a couple years ago called Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. If you have not read it, I would highly recommend it. I made the elders and deacons read it a few years ago. And one of the things it does is it looks at the sufficiency, the, cl- the clarity, the authority, and necessity of Scripture, which are sort of historic ways that the church has talked about the Bible and why the Bible is central to everything for the faith of God's people. Um, excellent, excellent, excellent little book. Um, the other thing I forgot, let me mention a few other things. Let me just give you some book things. If you're interested, if you don't, you're like, I've never done any, I've never read any systematic theology, or I don't have any works of systematic theology in my home. The first thing I would encourage you to get is this. It's called the Moody Handbook of Theology. It is a phenomenal reference volume. It's not a devotion book. You're not going to pick it up in the mornings and have it with your Bible and be deeply moved. Okay. It is a reference work for when you're curious about something. You're thinking, you're thinking about some doctrine, and you're like, what? now what is that again? It is not a systematic theology. It is a handbook of theology. So it's going to talk about all different sorts of theological systems. If you're like, Arminianism, I've heard that word before. What is that? Really good section on that. Calvinism, what, what is that again? Really good section on that. I'm thinking about the Trinity. Great section on that. Okay, very, very good reference volume. If you would like a systematic theology to sort of work through by way of study, there are two I would recommend. One is Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology, which is a book that about every, I think we did this about seven years ago. Um, I think some of the elders taught through Ryrie's um, Basic Theology here in the Sunday School class. It's another very good volume, not devotional. Okay, again, not super devotional. Uh, If you want something to read that is more devotional, I'm not going to call it devotional, but it's just really well written. Thomas Oden's classic Christianity is phenomenal. It's so good. It is more a look at what Scripture says and what the church has historically said about doctrines. If you get this and you look through this, you're going to be reading what the early church fathers, what the reformers, what some of the uh, theologians of the 1800s were saying about certain doctrines as they thought through what Scripture says. Odin's systematic theology is really, really good. I like it a lot. Okay, very, very good. Another very good volume, and this one is a good read. It's, it's, I think it's more, a little bit more in-depth maybe than Ryrie's, but it's called Major Biblical Themes, um, which is sort of an abridged version of uh, Lewis Berry Chafer's Massive Systematic Theology, which I think is like eight volumes. Um, this is another really good volume to have on your shelf. Okay, all right, I'm done hawking books. Sorry about that. I just we can only cover so much, and I want you to go deeper if you want to. Okay, all right. 
Let me, let me just show you what the early church said about Scripture, okay? Because the question is, you know, you've got the Roman Catholic Church that says, yeah, the Bible's important, but so is church tradition. You also need the authority of the church itself. You need the authority of the hierarchy in the church. Let's go back and look at what Irenaeus of Lyon said. This is from the second century in his work against heresies. He says, we have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God, handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. This is not some evangelical creation of the late 1800s to say that the Bible is the ultimate authority of life for this Christian or for the church. It wasn't invented by the reformers in the 1500s. This is Irenaeus in the second century, like 160, 170 AD saying this, all right? He's saying, look, of course, the first Christian truth was received from the apostles, but what they did is they then wrote it down in the scriptures. So you see then the historicity of what it is that we believe. We have to start with scripture. All right. Next is what we believe about God himself. If we start with the scriptures, then we get a clear and accurate picture of who God is. Now, our doctrinal statement goes into more detail than this, but I just want to start with what our doctrinal statement says about God. We believe in one triune God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal in being, identical in nature, equal in power and glory, and having the same attributes and perfections. This is a very clear, our statement is very reflective of historic Christian creedal statements on this issue. All right, look at what the verses that are mentioned there, okay? One is from the Old Testament, one is from the New Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word that we translate one is the Hebrew word echad. It means oneness, and it's used of God himself and his nature. It's also used of the husband and wife in Genesis chapter 2. So you even have within this idea of echad the union of persons. Now, there's an analogous thing there between husband and wife and, and God, but it, it stops at some point. Okay? It's, it's very lightly analogous. Okay? There is no analogy in a sense really, for who God is. But I just want you to see that that idea of oneness, unity in diversity, is there even within the Old Testament, but it's made explicitly clear in the New Testament. I mean, look at the benediction that we read a lot of times on our Fellowship Sunday. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay? And within our doctrinal statement, I really appreciate it, goes into the person and work of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so I would commend that to your reading. Uh, we're not going to go through all of that. But I just want to show you how this reflects historic Christianity. Look at the Nicene Creed, 4th century, okay? So 300s AD. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, 
being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Christians have been believing and actually specifically confessing these exact words since the 4th century. These are an accurate reflection of what Scripture teaches. They didn't just make this up. This is what they saw in the Scriptures and what they compiled together so that believers could make systematic theology and biblical theology memorable, uh, memorable and memorizable and then repeatable, especially when they didn't have access to Scripture themselves. So I need you to hear that. And the reason why this is important, as you're going to see, is we're going to go forward. What you believe about Jesus affects what you believe about the gospel. It is central to understand who Jesus is. I was talking with somebody recently, and they were telling me about how this former evangelical in this place has sort of changed his views on certain things. He denies the, uh, the atonement. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. And one of the reasons he does is because he says it would be divine child abuse. Okay? Now, that's a thing that atheists will throw around. It makes no sense if you understand anything in systematic theology. Because who is the holy God that we have sinned against? Is it just the Father? It is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. When the Son purposes to come and die in the place of sinful humanity, in some sense it is to propitiate or satisfy His own wrath against sin. It is it's very important that we think about God and speak of the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit. But if you overly parse God, which is what bad theologians do, then you miss, then you come up with crazy things like, oh, well, the atonement is divine child abuse. No. Jesus himself is wrathful against sin. It's not like God is angry and mad, and Jesus is nice and good, and the Holy Spirit's just trying to get them on the same team. That's ridiculous. So, it's, this is why systematic theology is important. It's important that we teach these things to our kids. You don't have to make your kid memorize every one of the creeds. You don't have to make them memorize every single passage in Scripture about the Trinity. But we need to be able to speak of these things so that they've heard these things, so that when they hear something wacky and crazy when they go off to university, they identify it as such. They're like, that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense based on what I know about what God has revealed of himself in Scripture. Okay. Yes. Sorry. Go ahead. Sure. Go ahead. Just this is the segment on that block, but I want to give a little punch here. Mm-hmm. When we were in Ireland, um, Emily, just the landscape or ministry or school, she was in high school, and the kids there that that really got interested in Christianity said, "If you're the first Christian, we've known that nobody would believe what you believe, and that you're not saved by church." Said. Yeah. And one time. She asked us if we thought it was all right. They wanted to come to the pub. And she sat in the pub early in the evening and did talk to this to say, yeah. she said, this is the way we put the word of God together. Yeah. And they were all like, that makes sense. And it was just the coolest thing. But it, I'm, just, I'm just plugging for what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. That all of this is so crucial for our kids. Yeah. And it's made such a difference in their whole life. Yeah. For those of you who are parents or or will be parents by God's grace, there is work in thinking through how to have conversations about these things, but it is the work that you have to do 
if you care about these things and if you care about your kids, it, it really is, there's plenty of evenings at my table where we're not sitting around talking about systematic theology, I assure you. Please don't think that. My boys don't sit down to eat dinner and go, ooh, can we open Thomas Oden's classic Christianity? They don't do that. Um, but that's where like reading scripture with your kids and then letting whatever little passage you read sort of jump off to discussions. Some of my favorite times as a family have been, and it does not happen every single time. You can go into something with the best of intents and it falls flat. And then there's other evenings where you, you were just like going through the motions and you read a passage and all of a sudden it sparks something in one of your kids. And then 45 minutes later, you've been talking about eternity for 45 minutes trying to, and they're trying to wrap their heads around it. I mean, it's just, you have to let God's spirit do those things, but you, you are entrusted with the responsibility of helping to create opportunities for God's spirit to work. And so uh, just hear that and, and hear that as an encouragement. Okay, so let's think about what we've just done. We've just talked about what is Scripture. Scripture reveals who God truly is. In light of what Scripture says about who God is, we also see who we are. Okay, And this is why I want to just mention what our doctrinal statement says about human sexuality. It says this, We believe that God has commanded that no intimate sexual activity be engaged in outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. We believe that any form of homosexuality, lesbianism, bisexuality, bestiality, incest, adultery, pornography, and any other kind. I'm glad we got the jump drawer phrase in there because the world is evil. And any kind of sexual immorality are sinful perversions of God's gift of sex. We believe that God disapproves of and forbids any attempt to alter one's gender by surgery or appearance. We adopted this language in the early 2000s. Thank you again, Jeff and elders, for this. Now, you know how many churches are putting this in their doctrinal statements like right now? A lot of them. A lot of them. So I'm grateful for uh, the foresight of our elders uh, to put this in here. In many ways, that addresses a significant amount of what is going on. Okay? That is in line with historic Christianity. Yes, Justin? Did the elders write that or was it derived from the elders? I'm not sure. Um, I know in 2016 or 17, there was a meeting of evangelicals, and they put out what was called the Nashville Statement. And uh, we actually include that in our membership packets now because it's a more fleshed out version of this. So, say again? He did a wide Yeah, I would imagine Jeff wrote that language and was informed by other churches that had doctrinal statements on this. Um, yeah, go ahead. I think, I'm sure he was because he would have been the legal. We had two lawyers working on that language, um, thinking through kind of what, which is hilarious. It goes back to one of the first systematic theologies written was written by John Calvin, who was a trained lawyer. Lawyers love systematic theology and language, and we thank the Lord for them. We did our work on trying to see what was biblical, and uh, he informed us on what was legal. That's right. <laughs> Which is a legitimate thing to think about. I mean, what we say and what we put forward in writing is, I mean, this is out very publicly. Our bylaws are on our website, so anyone who is so inclined and motivated can find this this language. Okay, But it is reflective of what Scripture Teaches. Now, I don't have time to get completely into that, but again, 
This is why we start with God's word and why, we, why that shows us who God is. And in light of that, then we know who we are. Okay? That's the important thing. We can be people who are just mad about the culture and rail on these things. Or we can say, no, this is the logical move from what God has said is good and right and true. This is what we believe in light of who God is and what he said is good for us and who we really actually are as those who bear his image. Okay? Important verses in Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them up. This is important, okay? The part there, I couldn't include it all in one slide. But before this, it talks about exchanging the truth of God for a lie, okay? Now, these verses do deal with the idea of homosexuality and things like that, but it starts with just aberrant heterosexuality, okay? God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. That's just general sexual immorality of all sorts and kinds. And the word that we even translate sexual immorality in the Greek, it's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get pornography. It's a junk drawer word. It's essentially any non-biblically sanctioned sexual activity. Okay, or specifically any, anything that's expressly forbidden. All right? Look at this, though. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural functions for those that are contrary to nature. And their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. He goes on and specifically highlights certain sexual practices. It's not like those in verse 26 and 27 are like any worse, you know, in a sense of being more sinful. I would say they are less congruent with the way God has designed humanity. You can certainly say that. And I think that's why he says receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Um, there is something to being to just pushing the boundaries as far as you can go or exceeding the boundaries to the furthest degree that you can go. But one is not inherently worse or more sinful than the other. All right. I think that's important for us to say, but we need to understand what God says about these things. And we need to understand that the church didn't make this up in the 1950s. Okay. Our culture's view of human sexuality People talk about it like it's always been there. And of course things have been, but especially within more like liberal Christian circles, there is a denial of the fact that this is what Christians have believed about human sexuality forever. Okay, look at these quotations. One from John Chrysostom in the third century says this. He says, sex is not evil. It is a gift from our God, but it can become a hindrance to someone who desires to devote all his strengths to God. Concerning sex, we must strive for self-control. St. Paul tells us to seek peace and sanctification, without which it is impossible to see the Lord. Let us pursue holiness then in order to attain the kingdom of heaven. Third century, okay? Not 1950, not 1880, third century BC, right? And the reason you don't have many writings about this prior to, again, is because it's just absolutely taken for granted, okay? The early church, one of the things that set them apart from the pagan culture was things like chastity, okay? Was staying faithful in marriage, was the prioritizing of marriage. All right, I, feel, I thought, put this one in there because I thought it was really interesting because in the same way we talk about, you know, 
all the things corrupting the kids. This is Athenagoras from the second century. He's a Christian philosopher. He says, lustful stories and drawings are set up, set up marketplaces for immorality and establish infamous opportunities for the young to practice every sort of corrupt practice. Second century, okay? Not your grandma in 1989, all right? Second century. Not focus on the family. Second century, A.D., okay? So I say all this and I highlight this again because of our particular moment. We need to understand these things. We we don't just need to understand what we believe. We need to understand why we believe them. It starts with what Scripture is. It's God's breathed out word. It comes from Him. It reveals who He is. And in light of that, then, we understand who we are. We're made to know Him, to worship Him, to walk with Him, and to live in a way that's congruent with what He says is good, right, and true, and beautiful. So that's why we speak of, that's why our doctrine deals with this, and that's why... Again, if you go and you look in the older doctrinal statements, this isn't going to be in here because this was not something they anticipated. They, of course, spoke out against the immorality of the 1960s, the 70s, the general immorality in the culture. But it has come to a place where it is a much more prominent and accepted. Deviance is, I mean, we literally have a whole month to celebrate it. So it's important that we can speak about these things, address these things biblically, address these things with compassion and mercy and grace. But to do so with firmness, standing in the stream of church history, that we're, in a sense, we're the mailmen, male persons. We're delivering the mail, okay? We're delivering the mail. We didn't make this up. We're delivering the mail, okay? Okay, so I know that's not as far into all those things as we can go. I know there's way more things that we can go into. Any thoughts, questions, feelings, hopes, dreams, aspirations in light of those, those things? Okay. Trying to be good stewards of time here, so I'm going to have to go really quickly through this one. Okay, our doctrine is also evangelical. Okay, a lot I could say about this. Evangelical doctrine is generally speaking sort of like theologically conservative doctrine, but I just want to highlight one aspect. Okay, I want to define this term again. This comes from the Moody Handbook of Theology that I was mentioning earlier. It says this He says, Evangelical is a biblical term derived from the Greek euangelion, meaning good news. Hence, an evangelical is one who heralds the good news of Jesus Christ. Does that sound like how the word evangelical is currently defined or understood? Okay. Can I just put this out here? All right. I assure you, I have just as strong a political views as any of you, if not more so. This is something the Lord's been working on me in the last few years. Would that our evangelicalism would be defined by this more so than our politics? Okay, it's what the word literally means. Okay, if we're angry, mad people all the time, we don't portray that we're people who believe good news. All right, I know we got to take stands. I know we have to do all those things. I am in full support of that. All right, but how we do it is important. Can we be joyful and cheerful warriors for truth? That's really important. Okay, good news. We are to be good news people. That's what it means to be an evangelical. Okay. All right, theologically speaking, while our doctrine as a whole is evangelical in the sense that it is theologically conservative, the term is used primarily to describe our understanding of the gospel itself, okay? All right, I wanna, we're going to have to briefly do this again. 
All right. Two places where evangelical, I think our doctrine is specifically evangelical. Point D there that you'll see is in regards to salvation. Point F is in connected to the idea of assurance of salvation. We're really just going to be able to deal with salvation and therefore the gospel this morning. Okay. All right. Subpoint D of our doctrinal statement. Salvation is by the work of Jesus Christ alone. On the cross of Calvary, God carried out the full penalty of sin upon his own son. Jesus took our place. He was our substitute. We believe that, the sal- that salvation is the gift of God brought to man by grace and received by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose absolutely priceless blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. The resurrection proves God's satisfaction with what Jesus did. Okay. Now, I want to highlight two aspects of this theologically. Okay. The first is the idea of substitution. The second is the idea of the penalty that our sin deserved. Okay. In theology, we call this penal substitutionary atonement. Okay. The idea being like there is a penalty, there is a punishment for contravening what a holy God has said. Okay, for rebelling against him, for working against him. All right? That punishment stands over all of mankind. And because God is gracious and merciful and desires to save his people, he sends the Lord Jesus to take that penalty upon himself in order that grace might be extended to sinners who are completely unworthy of it. That's why it's gracious. So it's important that we understand this because at various times and in various places, going even back into the early church, There are people who will say, well, if God is loving, how could he do this? Or why would he do this? Salvation must be something else. Okay, It must not really be associated with this in particular. And it comes to what what the gospel is. There are people who believe the gospel is that God loves us, and we therefore need to go out into the world and love others and show love. And that's the good news, that God loves us. Well, that is part of the good news. God does love us. But he demonstrates that love. That love is not warm, fuzzy feelings towards us. That love is active. Okay? The Greek word that we translate love often is in verbal form. Okay? In English, love can be, you know, it can be a verb, but it can also be a noun. Okay? In Greek, it's the same word with two different endings to show you whether it's a verb or a noun. So it doesn't say, for God so loved the world, meaning that like, he just loved us. It's, a ver- it's an active verb. <laughs> Agapao. In this way, God has thus loved the world. And it di- it's shown in him sending his only son. Okay? So this is connected to how we understand the gospel. And this is where systematic theology comes in. We need to understand who God is and therefore who Jesus is as the God-man. That when he assume, when he takes humanity upon himself, he does not cease to be a holy and righteous God who is wrathful towards sinners. But in taking on our humanity, he comes in humility in order that he might save us from that very wrath. So the systematic theology that we believe about God informs what we understand about the gospel. All right? That Jesus takes our place as our substitute. I deserved to die the death he died. I deserve to receive the full punishment for sin, be separated from God for all eternity. That is what I deserve. That's what you deserve. But Jesus goes to the cross and dies 
for the forgiveness of our sins. That Greek word is really, really important. It shows the reason. It's because. It's the grounds for something. Okay? Two verses here. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul talking. That Christ died for our sins. Because of our sins. That's how you can translate the Greek word gar. Because of our sins. In accordance with the scriptures. Go back to Isaiah 53. See what's pictured about what Messiah is going to do ultimately to save his people. And then John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, Paul uses the phrase children of God in a generic sense for humanity in one place in Acts 17. Okay, And he's using it in the general sense of saying, hey, look, we all have our origin with God. Okay. But when you see Paul then use it again in like Ephesians, when he uses family language in Ephesians, or when John uses it here, uses it, he use, uses it here, it's the idea of being brought into God's household because we have been reconciled to Him. We can now rightly see Him as Father. He's no longer wrathful, holy God. He is our Father. Okay, He brings us to Himself. So all of this comes in, and again, this is not new. Look at this. There's this early church writing called the Epistle to Diognetus, and it's dated to about 150 A.D. We don't know who wrote it, okay? We don't know who wrote it, but look at what's said in it. For what else was able to cover our sins except the righteousness of that one? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, sweet exchange. Please note that language. O sweet exchange, O the inscrutable work of God, O the unexpected benefits of God, that the lawlessness of many might be hidden in one righteous man, while the righteousness of one might justify many lawless men. Do you hear the worshipful words of one of your brothers writing in roughly 150 A.D., and reflecting nothing but what Paul says in Romans. He's almost devoted, devotionally and worshipfully writing about the truth from Scripture that has so captured his heart. The gospel of penal substitutionary atonement was not invented by the Reformers. It was not invented by the fundamentalists in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It is found within Scripture. It is the clear teaching of Scripture that has been, been believed on and proclaimed by the church from the very beginning, okay? Be encouraged in this. One more, Athanasius on the Incarnation. This is a great little work. You can get this online. Um, there's probably free versions, but I ordered a little book of it. I, read, I try to read this every Christmas. Great little book. It's amazing to be like doing your Christmas devotional reading by something written in the fourth century. It's amazing, okay? Uh, there's one copy you can get. C.S. Lewis wrote an introduction to this. The copy I have, Lewis wrote an introduction to this. And he talks about the idea of hearing the voices of your brothers and sisters in the past. And he talks about how theology can sometimes be hard to work through, uh, but it's valuable. Okay, Look at what Athan Athanasius says. But since it was necessary also that the debt owing from all should be paid again, for it was owing that all should die, he next offered up his sacrifice also on behalf of all, yielding his temple to death in the stead of all in order firstly to make men quit and free of their old, quite I think it's supposed to be quite free, of their old trespass 
and further to show himself more powerful even than death, displaying his own body incorruptible as first fruits of the resurrection of all. Okay, I know that's a little wordy, but essentially he's saying the exact same thing. Jesus dies in our place. I know that's a lot. I know I burned through that really quickly. I know there's a lot we could talk about, but I just wanted to give you a big picture overview. What do we believe about scripture? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about ourselves? What do we believe about the gospel? Our doctrine is historically Christian and it's evangelical. Love to talk with you more about this. If you've got questions, let me pray and then let's head over to our worship service. Father, thank you for this time. And Lord, uh, in, it, with so much to think about, Lord, uh, we just need your spirit to give us insight into these things and to bring these things to our minds and to show us these things and assure us from your scriptures of their truth, Lord, that we might live as your people and live as your witnesses. And so we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.